We're going to go ahead and get started. I invite you to find your seat and join us here. So tonight, this evening, we're on Lesson 9, which is What is Man? or Anthropology, uh, Study of Man, basically what that means. So, all right, there's some handouts in the back. There's some books to reference as well. But before we begin, I want to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, I uh, come before you tonight and pray that you would give us wisdom. Help us to understand our true nature. Um, there's so much confusion in our world today around this issue. And so, Lord, we need clarity, and your word gives us that. May we believe it. May we hold fast to it. May we delight in it in the way that you've made us and designed us uniquely for your purpose. And help us to embrace it and be uh, an example to the world uh, that we might take dominion for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so there's basically there's two approaches we can take to this topic. One is a secular approach or secular anthropology, which simply means man-centered approach. Um, the second kind, the kind we're going to focus on tonight, is biblical anthropology. And the questions that we're looking to answer with this topic have to do with who, who am I, uh, why am I here, what's my purpose in life, where am I heading, those sort of things. Uh, interestingly, this is, it was actually these questions, kind of existential questions, that led me to Christ. Uh, there, it's a long story, but um, some my neighbors who were solid Christians, who lived faithful lives when I was a kid, uh, introduced me to the gospel, introduced me to Jesus, but I didn't believe it at that time. But it wasn't until later when I was in college that I began to answer, or ask and wrestle with these real fundamental questions. And God used that, used those, that provoking of my, of my heart and soul to remember the, my neighbors who had demonstrated Christ to me. And, and that's what led me to go to church, actually just out of curiosity to learn who Jesus was. And so these are good questions to ask. Uh, there's a reason we ask them, and it's important that we answer them correctly. Uh, this is such a crucial doctrine to understand today. Uh, I think so many of the problems that we have in our culture directly stems around getting this wrong, not understanding who we are. There's mass confusion around this topic. We're living in a time when uh, our country's Supreme Court justice, at least one of them, couldn't answer the question of what is a woman. Uh, she said, I'm not a biologist. I'm sorry, I can't answer that. That was her reply. And so in contrast to secular anthropology, uh, we are not the product of chance in time. We're not a collection of, uh, of atoms bound together. We're not just put together like Lego bricks or something like that. We're not the product of mindless and personal universe uh, made through random mutations. This is not who we are. We're not the product of, of natural selection or anything like that. If that was true, then truly there would be no reason for us to have any sort of gratitude or gratefulness. Uh, there would be no one to thank. We would be nothing more than matter plus energy plus chance plus time. If these theories were true, then life truly would be meaningless. Um, and a lot of our youth today are kind of walking through a world I think with that understanding, and so it leads to all sorts of problem. The, but the Bible gives us a very, very different story. Uh, God is not random at all. He's glorious in his purposes and all that he does. 
He created human beings for a particular reason. He created male and female distinct from one another, but in his image with intentionality and with a purpose. And each individual life has intrinsic value and meaning in God's economy. And that message needs to be communicated because when it's not, it leads to all sorts of problems in our, in our world. Uh, we're living in a time with unprecedented youth and adults that suffer from anxiety and depression and hopelessness and grief and stress and, and gender confusion. And like I said, I think so much of this stems from a point of view regarding the meaning and purpose of life that is not tethered to the Bible. Uh, they don't understand who God is, and then they don't understand how he made them to be. There's confusion there. There's confusion with their own nature. And so they then seek to fill that void with other things that will not satisfy, but in fact, all it does is pollute and, and tear down. Uh, Solomon said uh, he, he pursued all things under the sun, and what was his conclusion? All is vanity. So we need to tie our worldview, we need to tie our understanding of truth to, to God and his word. Um, these warped and distorted views of anthropology have deeply affected our society. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like even many Christians today uh, are, have been catechized by the world in their understanding of what is true and what virtuous values are. I think some of our most fundamental beliefs about sexuality it comes from a blend of Disney, uh, movies, romantic comedies, novels, diversity posters, more than it comes from the Bible. And, and I, even some of the things I hear from pastors and teachers and, and from pulpits uh, startles me sometimes when they, when they speak about the nature of man. And unfortunately, most of what Christianity Today promotes, I think, comes from a version of culture, not from Scripture. So we want to look at God's Word, we want to understand it, but I, I want to help you see, too, how culture has infiltrated our views of humanity, and maybe perhaps we've adopted some of these without realizing we're doing it. So this is a big topic. We're not going to cover everything, uh, but this is true of every lesson we've done, so just... Sorry, it's the way it is. So uh, how did we get to where we are? We look at our culture, there's mass chaos. And, and I've, I've often wondered, like, how, how did this happen? It seems like it happened really fast, especially in the last decade. And as we look at culture and the chaos in it, we might ask, how did we get here? And I, I think Ernest Hemingway's answer to that question in his famous poem, The Sun Also Rises, is a good explanation, actually. In it, uh, he, one man asked another man a question. The question is, how did you go bankrupt? And Bill answered, two ways. Or Bill asked, two ways, Mike said, gradually and then suddenly. And I think that's exactly what's happened in our culture as well. There has been significant change in recent years, but it's important to notice that the seeds of this change were already in the ground many, many decades ago. We just didn't know it. We didn't notice, and we didn't notice, I think, because our theology was formed by the culture rather than God's word. But now, a major shift has happened, seemingly overnight, and we're wondering how we got here. Um, if you want to trace some of this more uh, detailed approach about how we got where we are, I would really recommend reading uh, Carl Truman's book called The Rise and, Fall, or Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
Not an easy read, it's a heavy read, but really, really good. If you want an easier read about it, I would refer you to God's Good Design by Michael Clary, also in the back. Both are excellent books that trace this uh, fall. Uh, so let me, let me show, try to show you a little bit about this fall. This is a really depressing slide. The slide is easy, uh, but making it was really hard. So this, there's a series of steps of misinformation, confusion, distortions of who we are that got to us to where we are today. Uh, if you want to see the, the reality that ideas have consequences, I think we can look right here. Uh, wrong views of anthropology, bad views of doctrine of man leads to wrong thinking and wrong living. It's just that simple. Bad theology leads to bad living. And the first seed that was planted, I think, was the Gnostic seed or Gnosticism. Uh, the Gnostics believed in a strict separation of the body and the spirit. Now, that's bad theology. Um, this was also one of the major battles of the early church were, was the Gnostic teachings. It's a philosophy that teaches the body and all the rest of the material world, by the way, is bad. And um, the, the spirit and the whole spiritual realm was good. So they made this distinction between physical, material world, bad, spiritual world, good. And first of all, that's, that's just bad theology because what's the new heaven, new earth? God made us both physical and spiritual. He redeems our physical body in the resurrection. He redeems our spiritual body now, even currently. We're being sanctified. The new heavens and the new earth, he's going to redeem both creation and self. So there's issues there to begin with. But when they, when they make everything that's physical bad, you have a distorted view of sexuality, you have a distorted view of people. And so for the Gnostics, your, your true self was spiritual. Salvation ultimately occurred at the end of one's life when the individual finally escaped this material world. The Gnostics didn't look forward to the new heaven and the new earth because for them that would mean a physical place and a physical place was bad in their understanding. Does that sound familiar at all to you? And I would say it should, because it's making a great comeback in, in our day to day. Uh, the modern claim that someone's gender can be different than their biology, I think fundamentally is a Gnostic claim. It's not uncommon to hear someone say today uh, something similar to, I feel like a woman trapped inside a man's body or something similar. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a Gnostic type of claim there. And anyone who would say something like that is basically telling God that he needs to repent for the way he created him, that somehow he made a mistake. That's, I mean, that's blasphemy to the highest degree. And, and yet we entertain this kind of this language so often. And this Gnosticism led to feminism. And feminism is really just the fruit plucked off the Gnostic tree. Uh, many people uh, herald feminism as some sort of good. In reality, I think it's a really bad thing. This is evident in two key ways. Modern feminists downplay the unique female function of childbearing. One of the fundamental things we're called to do uh, is, is to multiply. And so what God explicitly states is, is blessed and good in scripture, they call cursed by the world. I think it's no small irony that feminism produces hatred 
and even fear for anything that reflects the true woman beauty of bearing life. I think that's a, a major flaw in their philosophy because it goes directly against what God has called good. The unique goodness of the female body is denied, I think, under the banner of equality, but the equality that they produce is not equality at all. It's just sameness. They're trying to make women the same as men. And so the result is that feminism does not promote the unique goodness of women. What it actually does is it forces them to act more like men, which is detrimental to them. And, and it's sin against God because he's the one that made the distinctions to begin with. And those distinctions are actually very good and beautiful. This feminism led to uh, androgyny. This is really bad because this is making flattening everything so everything is the same. Androgyny is a child of Gnosticism and feminism. It produced this. Androgyny refers to the sameness as the blending of both male and female as being the same characteristic in a single person. Uh, in modern terms, people might call themselves, for example, non-binary or queer, meaning neither male or female. This is the, the modern expression of this philosophy. This is quickly becoming mainstream. You're seeing it on movies and TV shows and sitcoms and everywhere else. It's taking over like a wave. Uh, this adds nothing to the glory of a woman, nothing at all. In fact, it obscure, obscures the unique glory of women by making them less feminine, which is not a good thing. At its core, I would argue, it's misogynistic. It tries to advance women by making them more manly, which is weird and, I think, very un uncharitable to them. This leads, then, to contraceptions. Contraceptions is essentially trying to have no consequences for engaging in sexual activity. Scripture teaches, and even apart from the Bible, just natural revelation, historically people have recognized three things belong together, marriage, sex, and childbearing, these three things. But the birth control pill completely changed that drastically. For the first time, now women can engage in sexual activity without the risk of pregnancy. And once the possibility of that was removed, casual sex without pregnancy was widely adopted. And then what followed with that is marriage was gradually stripped of its practical obligations. And when that's stripped of its practical obligations, it reduces marriage to nothing more than a legal obligation of personal fulfillment. This is very problematic, and, it, and it's affecting, this ripple effect affects our society. And so as a result, the decades that followed were marked by skyrocketing divorce rates, plummeting birth rates, and out-of-control sexual revolutions. Abortion became legal, functionally turning a mother's body into a graveyard. I mean, this is horrendous, and this is exactly where this degrading has gone, but it began, began where? With departing from God's definition of male and female. This then led to the Obergefell decision, 2015. I think this is where things begin to really pick up pace. 
It was legalized for homosexuals to be married. Married, it's not, a, it's not a real marriage, but they called it that legally. And this is where I think the gradual change became very, very sudden, very quick. Because marriage was no longer viewed as a covenant bond that produced, provided for, and protected children. It then be, was reduced to nothing more than a legal sex contract between two people, whoever you wanted to be. That gave birth to transgenderism, with marriage now redefined, what prevents us from redefining everything, male and female, as the only categories of personhood? Why not more? Why, not, why can't we have more than that? And so transgenderism might seem to us like, oh man, this came out of left field. Where did this, where did this happen? But I don't think that's what happened at all. Slow compromise creates really big problems in the long run. It's just the logical progression of what started all the way back with Gnosticism. Gender ideology eliminates the categories of male and female. It denies biology and it denies a physical realm of what's obvious. Transgenderism reminds me of uh, a certain species of spiders. There's a desert spider. And the desert spider is interesting because it gives birth and then its kids eat it. And so in a lot of ways, I think this is what's happening with traditional feminism. Transgenderism is the offspring of feminism, and it's consuming its own mother. Very, very similar. This can be seen, I think, when we look at women's sports, for example, where now you have biological men who literally dominate the women's sports realm and take away their scholarships as well. And these you know, transgender women... Are, are getting their records shattered, or shattering the records of real women. And pretty soon, I don't think we're that far off where every record that was ever set by a woman is going to be taken over by a man. And this is feminism. This is promoting the good of women. It's, it's nonsense. But it all begins all the way back with this seed of deception. It's pathetic. So where does the future lead with this downfall? Well, I think you're seeing part of it in the LGBTQ community. This sexual revolution is very dangerous. It's like a runaway train without brakes on it. And it's just running over everything in its way. Gender ideologies are like a cancer that is infecting every level of society. And I have a lot of uh, concern for the young people because they are inundated with this stuff. I don't know that they know how to think through it exactly. And so I think the best way that we can help them is to teach them who God says that they are and to teach them the glory of manhood and womanhood, those distinct categories that God has made. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Your identity is not in who you have sex with. Your identity is in Christ and in God who made you for a purpose. But LGBTQ activists are playing the long game, and we're not. What's shocking to us, uh, you know, what, what seems shocking now would have been shocking 20 years ago, but now people just accept it like it's no big deal. They've normalized this, and they're now openly celebrating these sort of perversions every, every Pride Month in June. And, and what we find shocking now may also be celebrated 20 years from now in another month. Who knows? Unless we intervene. And so the, this all leads, I think, to the, the total collapse of society, and we're watching it happen. And I, again, it begins with a misunderstanding of who we are. 
It's, it's a deeply theological problem. That's my contention here. That's my proposal. And Christians today, we need to, to keep our grip on what the Bible says about who we are fundamentally. So how do we fight this? Okay, how do we, how do we deal with this madness and this perversion? I actually don't think it's that hard. A lot of people want to like write these long books about how you interact, how you interact with these people, and, and I just, I just think we need to just call it what it is. It's a lie. Uh, I love this little, it's a short little video uh, that's kind of funny, but I'll play it for you. You know, I was, I was on a, I got to tell you this, Peter, I was on a train once, and, and you know, in the, in the dining room, a dining car, these trains, they seat you with perfect strangers, and I was seated uh, uh, next to this elderly woman, and across from the, uh, me and from this woman was this young, younger, 20-year-old something, 20-something-year-old girl who was so excited and enthusiastic because she had just spent a year at a new age camp. And she was explaining to the woman next to me what she discovered in this training was that she was God. And she was all excited about this discovery. And I'm just behaving myself, eating my lunch. I, I, don't, I don't see a thing. I'm listening to this. I can't, can't believe it. And this elderly lady is trying to be nice and polite and shake her head to this girl. And, and the, so this young woman kept looking at me to see what she was going to get a reaction from me. I didn't say anything. And she, she finally couldn't stand it anymore. And she says, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, I said I, I'm just sitting here in utter amazement. This is the first time in my life, apart from the Lord's table, that I've been able to sit across the table from God himself. <laughs> or in this case, herself. And then I looked her in the eye and I smiled and I said, you really don't believe that you're God, do you? And I did. And she looked at me and she said, well, no. All right. So I think that's funny. And I think it's a, it's a playbook, too. You just need to call it out. Okay. It's a, it's a mass suppression of the truth is what they're doing. And they know it. They know it's a suppression of the truth. You know how I know they know it? Because they make you affirm them. They make you affirm them. But if you don't, you just refuse to do it, and you call them out, it exposes, I think, the lie. And that's where Christians were so afraid to just say the truth. But when people do, that's how you, that's how you, you, you win. So we need to just be truthful about it. So what does the Bible say? What, what does the Bible tell us? Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In, his image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God made us 
for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7 says, everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory. And this fact alone gives every person in this room significance. But unless we understand what that means, it can seem to us very meaningless. Many young people grow up and they've heard this, this verse said many times and they, they don't take it to mean anything. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. We'll talk about some of the reasons maybe that's why. But we are made in God's image. Our, our creation is either male or female. There's no other option here. But this reality that God made us should answer all of life's ultimate questions. Why are, what, what's our purpose in life? To glorify God and enjoy him. It shows uh, that humanity is unique and it is the very high point of God's creation. We are the high point. It explains how we are to relate to the God of heaven. We're, we're confused about what our purpose is and what we're supposed to do. Well, he tells you how to interact with him. It gives us a worldview that, that we can live by and order our lives around. It addresses the very issues of our day, such as abortion and euthanasia and homosexuality and transgenderism and environmentalism. All of these issues that seem to dominate our news cycles, it's all right here. It tells us exactly how to think about them, but most people don't think rightly about them because they're not thinking through the lens of Scripture. So it brings things into proper perspective. And it gives us a basis for refuting false humanistic philosophies. Humanism, communism, naturalism, and every other ism out there, the biblical worldview tells us how to think and deal with those things. So as God's creation, we are made in the image of God. This is sometimes referred, sometimes referred to as Imago Dei. Imago Dei. So, uh, scripture reveals that man is made in God's image and in his likeness. The Hebrew term for image signifies that it's a copy, but also carries the idea of representation. And then the Hebrew word for likeness can also refer to pattern or shape or form. And so it signifies uh, that, that we're patterned after the original, an original. So functionally speaking, we function as God's representatives who are made in the image of God and in the likeness of God himself. We are patterned after the original, not in every way, okay, but in a significant way nonetheless. And I think it's this understanding that is so foundational to our theology when it comes to the doctrine of man. And if you put these two, uh, put these two meanings together, we can conclude that we, man, humanity, function as God's pattern representatives in the world. But not all is right in the world, is it? Now, this is a different class. It's on the doctrine of sin, which we'll get into uh, soon. But for now, I'll leave you with this. There was sin that entered the world, and that distorted our image. The fall in Genesis 3, God's image is distorted. But let me ask you this. Is his image eradicated or erased because of sin? Do we still maintain the image of God even though we're plagued by sin? Yes, is what I'm hearing, and that's the right answer. Yes, which is why we value all life, too, even jerks. We value their life. We want them to live. We don't, we don't seek to, to kill people and murder people. That's a sin to murder, 
Uh, so it's, it's not that we completely lose the image of God just because of sin. But that's also the story of, of this Bible, redemption, right? Redemption in Christ, sanctification is a progressive recovery of God's image, his good image that he made in the beginning. It's a pro- progressive recovering of more of God's image. And at Christ's return and his resurrection, we see the complete restoration of God's image that was distorted by sin in the beginning. You also see a complete restoration of the creation that he made. Romans 5, I think, you know, highlights this for us in a really unique way. I think it's typological of the fall of the first Adam, that we have been excluded, in a sense, from the garden. And we're now, as Christians, living in the wilderness of the Exodus, and we're awaiting to enter the new garden, the new Eden. And, and God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, according to Romans 5, to fulfill what the first Adam failed to do. First Adam failed to be a, a proper and good representative, and Christ has come and fulfilled that mandate perfectly. And it is with Christ who will, in him alone, who will lead us out of the exodus by restoring Eden on earth eventually. So that, that's who we look to, and we can see examples of that. So the implications for Imago Dei, what does that imply for us? And I apologize, some of your slides are out of order. Um, I printed them and then I made a change and I wasn't going to reprint them again, so you'll figure it out. So first implication, I think, is we see the, the value of human life, the value of human life. The image of God is affirmed by all persons and ethnicities. Genesis uh, 5, 1 through 3 says... This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's a profound verse, by the way. Verse 2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Interesting passage, too. What do you see there? We procreate and we make other people in our image as well. I think that's, that's profound, who, which reflects the image of God whom we were all made in. And so this passage affirms that man is made in the likeness of God. As I said, this fact alone is profound and demands that we respect life. And that is to say all human life, not just some, but all. And this understanding is also re- reveals that, that Seth was a son in the likeness of his father, Adam. In the likeness of his father, Adam. James 3.9 condemns cursing people. Why? Why does it condemn cursing, cursing people? Because, according to James 3.9, they're made in the likeness of God. That's why. We've lost sight of that. Culture has definitely lost sight of that. But both male and females are image bearers. Both are, are equal in value to God, even though each are given different roles and responsibilities. We see this throughout the scripture. And these roles are to be embraced, not rejected. These roles are woven into the very fabric of creation itself and in sexuality itself. And I think it is this background of, of Genesis, the Genesis account, which is foundational to our theology and understanding of who we are. Sex was not 
incidental to the world God made. It was not incidental to it. By God's design, sex produces the most valuable beings in all of creation. What is that? A person. It creates a person, which God told them to do, to procreate and to take dominion by making other households, right? And God protected this act by building a marriage covenant around it. We have such a distorted view now of what sex is. Sex is, is like a, a priceless work in a museum, okay? But thieves are trying to break in and steal the art and damage the art and vandal the art because they don't like the artist, which is God. It's like a Christmas gift that's under the tree. It's wrapped up in a covenant. And we're not to unwrap the gift until the, the right time when it can be fully expressed and fully enjoyed for the purpose that he made it for. And since the image of God is expressed in male and female humans, I think the masculine and the feminine qualities that we each possess are not random or incidental. We want to we make everybody the same, but we are not the same. And that's good. I, I'm glad my wife is not like me, and I'm sure glad she doesn't look like me. And we should uh, express our differences in a ways that God intended to. We need to bring more attention to that and more beauty to that and build our households around those differences because we're, we're working together in the dominion mandate, not against each other. There's not, our, 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 our male and female distinctions are not constructs that can be changed as we see fit. Masculine and feminine are both grounded in God's nature and his purpose for creation. So we see, first, I think, value in human life and even the distinctions by which he made us. And also we see this played out in relationships. Man is designed in the image of God as God, as a relational being. First of all, because God himself is a relational being. You see this in the doctrine of the Trinity. We've already looked at the doctrine of the Trinity in an earlier lesson, so I won't go too far down that, but we, but we are reminded again when we look at God's nature that we are to reflect that in relational, uh, having relationships with other people. God has made us to be relational just as he himself is relational, which is why it's very unhelpful when we isolate ourselves. And a lot of Christians do this. We isolate ourselves. What's sad, we isolate ourselves from the very means of grace that God gives us. Corporate worship, prayer, other believers, spending time together, uh, walking through life together. Those are gifts God has given the church. And when we isolate ourselves from that, we're not gonna grow, we're not gonna be sanctified, we're not gonna find joy or, or, or purpose. It's not to say it's never good to get, you know, be alone. We, we all need to do that at times. Jesus did that at times. But the majority of his life was lived among people. And that should be the, the, the pattern in our life as well. That's why the government has no right ever to tell the church when it can and cannot gather. It's not, it doesn't have the authority to do that. God has mandated that the body gather. God has told us to do that. They don't get to decide that. God gets to decide that. We're called to obey that. And, and that manifests itself in many ways. It's not just Sunday morning, but it should be throughout the week, too, with, with one another's. We also see third 
the, the dominion mandate. Man is charged and enabled, that word is key, to enabled to rule and subdue the earth on God's behalf. That was his initial purpose. Man's right to rule the creation is affirmed in Genesis, which we've already read. He told us that. But it's also affirmed in places like Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 through 8, which says, You have given him, that's us, dominion over the works of your hands and put all things under his feet. I find it interesting because Paul quotes this same passage in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, when he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are all are speaking, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's the dominion mandate. Man is called to take dominion and woman is called to participate in that dominion and support that mission. And so men... Take dominion, uh, rule, rule well, not, not, not as a tyrant, but rule. Don't be a pacifist. There's so many weak men now. I think it's a big part of our cultural issues is men have failed to step up. Men have failed to lead. They failed to lead their families. They failed to lead in the workplace. They failed to have a voice. They've let femininity railroad them into cowardness. And they're now limp-wristed and weak. And I think we need more men to rise up and be strong. Be strong leaders. Have a backbone. Don't be a pawn. Be willing to lose. Be willing to fight, which means also be willing to lose. And, and women, I would say this, don't steal the strength of men. Don't steal the strength of men. Let men lead. Encourage them to lead. And then support them in this God-given endeavor. Dominion is a, is a team effort, but each role plays an important purpose in this. You're working together in this mandate. Culture has just distorted this in crazy ways. How is man the image of God? How is man the image of God? Ontologically, that has to do with our, the nature of our existence, Unity of soul, spirit, and body. Man is a living, personal, self-conscious, active being with personality. We're a complex unity of soul, spirit, and body. We're dualistic in that sense. We have a physical nature and a spiritual nature. We're, we're aware. We have a personality that makes us unique to other creatures in the world. We have a will. We have an ability to, to make complex choices, not just basic choices, but complex choices. Math. We can come to conclusions. We can think logically, linearly. Man has a will and the ability to select between various choices, complex choices. He can discern right from wrong. This uh, volitional aspect separates man from animals and other creatures that are mentioned in Genesis 1 through 2. And yet what you see in culture is culture trying to flatten that out as if that's not true. It is true. It's very true. And they know that it's true. And I kind of think we should just be like R.C. Sproul and say, you don't believe that, do you? Because there are many examples that we can point to this that shows they don't even believe that because they don't live their life that way. 
They live their life acknowledging this every minute of every day. So why are you pretending like it isn't true? Intellectually, man has a rational mind. He's aware of himself. He's aware of his environment. He's aware of other people. Some people aren't. <laughs> but we're, we, we should be, right? Conscientious. God exists. We, we know that intuitively, that there is a God, there is a higher power, a higher being. Even pagan coach cultures acknowledge this. Most of them do. He can think uh, critically and logically. We, we possess memory and imagination and creativity. We have language skills for communicating and understanding the thoughts of other people. This is incredibly unique to us and in comparison to the created world. Emotionally, we have feelings such as fear, anxiety, regret, shame, happiness, and joy. We have a wide range of emotional feelings. Relationally, we are equipped for relationship with God and with other people. We are equipped to participate in the relationship with God and other people. Jesus said, that the, the greatest commandment is to love God and love others. And only a person's, only people can, can give and receive love in the manner in which the Bible describes it. Animals are not capable of doing that. Functionally, we're able to fill, rule, and subdue the earth on God's behalf for God's glory. God has given us what we need to fill, rule, and subdue the earth on behalf of his glory, for his glory. Male and females have, have bodies that are able to reproduce and interact with the physical environment, which means the Gnostic view is wrong. Materialist, materialism isn't inherently evil, but we make it evil by what we do with it. Humanity possesses the ability to implement a, a successful strategy for taking dominion. At times we've done it well, at other times, we have not done it so well, but we have the ability to do it with the Lord's help, not in independence from him. If we reject him, we will fail, undoubtedly. So here's a question. If we have a will, if we have volition, we can choose, we can make decisions, even complex decisions, is the natural unregenerate man capable of doing any good? Apart from God, are they capable of doing good? Unregenerate man, an unsaved man. True good. Ultimate good. No. I think this is a helpful way to kind of think about it. Um, what are, the, what are the limitations of this? So if you have, you have if, you, if you imagine, or I don't have to imagine, you have, I've made this for you, but I imagined this in my head. Uh, you have evil, the natural man. You have true good, the renewed man, the Christian. Say someone does an act like, you know, theft, okay? We could think of a hundred different sins. We'll just use that one. That's pretty far on the, on the other side of, of evil and bad, right? But let's take a, a, a different example. Let's say somebody donates out of genuine care and goodwill 
to a children's hospital, a large amount of money. Is that closer or farther away from the line? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to push that, actually. I wanted you to talk. What were you going to say, though? Yeah, it's in your... <laughs> Yeah, from a general perspective, I think we can say that's a general a good, perhaps closer to the line, but still not ultimately good, would right? Say, yeah. Would you say that people that are good are saying that do good to others like that, it's because they're made in the image of God, so that, even though it's obscured and not revealed, it, uh, it causes them, or it's, it's out of that, that they're doing that good? That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I think there are, there are times when even unregenerate people, men and women, will do general goods out of a reflection of their nature that's still distorted. And because it's distorted, they're not doing a true good, an ultimate good. Uh, Spurgeon said it this way. He said, we, we are free. We have free will, yet bound. Free will, but bound. What, he, what he's saying is that we're free to choose The problem is, in our unregenerate state, we're bound to the wrong side of the line. We're bound to the wrong side. So we can do general good, but we can never cross that line to do true good. Because it's really not a question of free will. I think what it really is is a question of goodwill. It's a question of goodwill. And the will to to be good must be tied to a nature that is good. And so unless our hearts are born again, right, John 3, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot bring pleasing glory to God. So can someone do the same act as the other person on the left side? Yeah, I think so. They can also make a donation to a children's hospital, but they're doing it. The difference for the redeemed is they're doing it for the glory of God because what is the highest good ultimately? It's God. It's Christ. And and until our nature is changed, I don't think we actually do true good, ultimate good. Does that make sense? I think that's kind of a helpful way because there's some confusion there because we can, in fact, we can make real choices. Unbelievers and believers make real choices. But apart from God uh, redeeming us, we're, we're just bound to the wrong side, as Spurgeon says. I think that's a helpful way to think about it. Yes? Yeah, I can think of two, two examples that could be helpful here. So 
What, what does Jesus say in the New Testament? The law is fulfilled. What's the first commandment? Love the Lord your God. All your heart. And the second is like the first. What is the second? Can you truly love your neighbor if you don't first love the Lord? Not truly. Not accurately. Not perfectly. So it, it's tethered to the first. The same could be true, um, thinking, zooming out even more, like at a, at a governmental level. So you have the first table of the law, the Ten Commandments, you have the second table of the law. The first table is directly related to love the Lord your God, right? There is no other gods before me, have make no other idols. The, the second table of the law is, is, is more tied to external acts, right? Don't uh, murder, don't do things like that. So the, the second, can you, can you truly obey, govern correctly the second table of law if you don't even acknowledge the first table? Can you truly govern and, and have righteous laws about not stealing and what theft is or what the family is or what a parent is, obeying your parents, or what murder is if you don't even acknowledge that God exists? I don't think so. I think that, I mean, I don't want the government enforcing the first table of the law because then they would dictate the forms of worship, but I do think they should acknowledge that because if they don't acknowledge that, I don't think they're going to govern the other things that we all want right or well either. And I think you see examples of that. Now you call criminals, not even criminals, that, that steal. They don't even prosecute half of them, at least in Multnomah County. So it, 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 there's, it's all kind of tied. If, if you dismiss God, you remove God from the equation, you can still choose, but you're going to choose wrong. So you have to acknowledge him. Questions on that? All right. Our human constitution, I'm calling this dualistic. There's some big debates about this. I'll just tell you how I, how I work through it, and you make your own decision. So there are two parts that make up uh, the dichotomy of man, spiritual and physical. I use the, I use the term dualistic. I, I realize there's nuances to this. I say this because it's just the easiest way to explain we have a physical nature and we have a spiritual nature to ourselves. There are three views, monism, monism, dichotomy, and trichotomy. Okay, uh, Dichotomy and trichotomy are both biblical perspectives. Those are orthodox perspectives. I would say monism is, is an unbiblical perspective since it states that the physical and the spiritual are inseparably linked. That they're, they're not this, they're, there's no distinction whatsoever in them. Uh, naturalism would also fall into this, this category because it would deny any spiritual realm altogether. That would be like a, an atheist or something like that. So the Bible uses uh, five terms to refer to human personhood. You have the body, which is the physical body of man, right? There's a, that's the physical dimension to him. But then you have all these other words that describe the non-material part of man, things such as soul, Spirit, heart, conscience, these are all describing some form of the non-material aspect of humanity, of who we are. The soul is an entire, the entirety of the living being. It's the interior function of the person. I think when it's used in scripture, it's usually used to, 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 to speak of the will or the emotion. The spirit is the immaterial, deepest part of man. The heart isn't 
when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's not talking about the, the organ that pumps in your chest. It's not talking about that. But it's talking about the seed of the personality, uh, their attitudes, their, their motivations, their actions. You have the conscience, which is the moral evaluation of right and wrong that is inside of a person. Good and evil, an awareness, a rational capacity to, to choose between those things. And, and these distinctions do matter, I think, because sometimes the problems that we're facing are physical ones, and sometimes the problems that we're facing are spiritual. This is why I'm an advocate, and our church is an advocate of biblical counseling. Because if you go to a psychologist or a secular counselor, they're going to deny the spiritual aspect of humanity, which means they're going to ignore all of these other all of these other descriptions, the heart, the soul, the spirit, that there's a spiritual dilemma. And oftentimes there's over, overlap. Sometimes physical ailments can cause us and tempt us that, that hurts our spiritual walk with the Lord. So there's overlap, but we need to make sure we're addressing the right thing. Um, but at the same time, sometimes it's unhelpful to spiritualize everything when the problem somebody's facing is, is a physical one. For example, I have type 1 diabetes. My pancreas does not produce insulin. Sometimes you hear beeping up here, and that's my pump alerting me. It's annoying, but it's trying to help me, so it delivers insulin for me. Now, if I don't take insulin, I'm going to become very ill and sick. And so someone could approach me and say, you know, if, if all they're thinking of is the spiritual side of things, it would be super unhelpful to say, you know, you're just in sin, you're somehow you're not living right, you're not doing this, uh, and, and that's, why, that's why you're suffering. If you just had more faith, then, then you'd be well. When, well. What I need is insulin, and I'd be well. It's a, it's a totally physical issue. The same thing is true on the other end, where, uh, for example, you can have, and I see this a lot in doctors' offices these days, you, you got a guy who, let's say, has an alcohol problem, gambling problem, and has committed adultery on his wife five times, and his marriage is wreck, his family's a wreck, and he goes into a deep, dark depression. He goes to the doctor because he's depressed. He tells the doctor all of these symptoms, and the doctor says, take these pills, they'll make you feel better. Totally treating the physical part. What, what, what he should say is, actually, you don't feel bad enough. You need to repent, okay, you've sinned. You've sinned against God. You need to repent of your sin, and God can restore you. It's a, it's a spiritual issue. So he's treating the physical part and not the spiritual part of that man. And that's where true counseling, true biblical counseling, is rightly dividing what issue are we dealing with and, and addressing that. But it, it has to do with understanding who we are fundamentally. We're dualistic. We have a physical nature, and there's at times physical ailments, and we have a spiritual nature, and at times that needs to be addressed. And oftentimes, they both need to be addressed. So uh, ways of, of looking at this, you have uh, dichotomy, which would see the body and the spirit, right? Or soul, spirit, it's kind of a, a dotted line. It's, it's, they, they mean different things, but they're um, all summarizing the non-material part. The, the trichotomy would make a hard line distinction. They would say, yes, we have a physical body, but the soul and the spirit um, are, are, are different things. For example, the soul is the essence of our being, 
and the spirit is what connects us to God, they would say. They're not the same things, and they, and they, they want to make harder distinctions there. And then you have a multifaceted view, which is kind of like dichotomy, really, but it's saying not just do we have soul and spirit. We have soul, spirit, heart, conscience, mind, will, and they're all referring references to the non-material part of man. So when we think about who we are constitutionally, I think it's helpful to, to think about it in these terms because these are all terms that the scripture uses, uh, and you may have noticed that as you read. Questions on that? Yes? I'm saying my view is I would take a dichotomy view that they're both references to the non-material, the soul and spirit, to the non-material part of man. Um, and so there's a spirit and then there's the body. Some would, would, would say this spirit is what connects us to God and the soul is, is like our personality, our essence, our being. And, bo- and they would, both positions would say, yeah, both go to the Lord when, we're, when, when they depart. It's just a nuance thing. But people have really strong opinions about it. Uh, and so I'm just letting you know there's views on this. And uh, I, I think the simplest way to understand it is, is, is the dichotomy view. But there, there are opinions otherwise. So, yes? Uh, I would say it does, yeah, yeah. I mean, your your brain is linked to that. Yeah, there's a physical aspect to it too. Your personality can be affected if you have an accident, right? You can lose your memory. You can lose physical aspect to it. There's there's a link there. It is interesting, um, I mean, I, in my job, I've seen lots of dead people, um, and it sounds a little bit morbid, and it, it, to see someone who's alive and well one moment and the next not, it really does impress that there is more to our being than just what we see in the physical, that when, 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 when life is gone, there's a physical shell but we know intuitively, and everybody knows in that room, that the soul of that person, however you want to describe that, soul, spirit, heart, conscience, mind, will, the Bible uses all these terms in a non-material sense, that that's gone. That's gone. It's gone somewhere else. We know that. Uh, we want to deny that. Oftentimes people want to deny that because of the implications. Because if you acknowledge that, then who gave us that? Who breathed the life into us. According to Genesis, God did. God breathed life. And it is that very spirit that gives us our non-material part of our being. Made us from the dust of the ground, physical, breathed life into us, non-material. That makes the constitution of a human. Those two things coming together. Oh, gender, marriage, and procreation. This will be fun. So God created human sexuality 
male and female. Those are the appropriate bathroom signs. If you see a different one, run away. This is, this is the only two that there are. There are not various ones besides this. God created us for relationships, not for isolation. Uh, a, a rejection of one's gender is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of the Imago Dei. God's intent for man and woman was the intention of a lifelong commitment of unity in marriage. A homosexual relationship or anything like that is a perversion of God's design. God calls it a sin. He explicitly states that practicing, I should say unrepentant practicing of homosexual behavior, that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strong language, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Uh, this Sunday I'm preaching on Jude 5 through 7. And two of the examples are of gross sexual immorality and God's judgment upon that. This is a very big deal to the Lord. And so also, Scripture strictly forbids not just homosexual behavior. And I realize we, that's easy to talk about because it's, it's so out of line or so unnatural that we like to talk about that. But we don't like to talk about all the other ways of fornication, pornography, type of fornication, this type of unfaithfulness, the type of adultery. Fornication are condemned in Scripture explicitly. Adultery is ex condemned explicitly in Scripture. Bestiality is condemned explicitly. Homosexuality as well. All of these fall into the same category of sexual sins, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, a lot. And I think he, the reason he has a lot to say about it is because it goes against his original design for us. When we, when we push against that, we're sinning greatly against God who made us. And he did not make us to do that, to do those things. He had a specific role in which he wanted it expressed. But when we go outside of that, we're on dangerous ground. And so gender roles, there are differences between men and women. I think we know this. If you have eyeballs, you know that. We don't look the same, right? Differences in roles does not equate differences in equality. It doesn't equate differences in importance. It doesn't equate differences in value. No, we, we all have value in God's eyes, the same value, men and women. But God does assign different roles to men and women in the church, in the home, and in the culture because that is how he designed us to function. By the way, I think this is true from creation, to very account of creation. These roles were in effect, in effect before culture was even formed. And so a lot of times I, the arguments that I hear is that people say, you know, this, uh, this is just uh, the, the, the way the culture was at the time when Paul wrote this. This is just, you know, culture formed your conservative Christian thoughts. No, Genesis did. And Genesis described this before culture even came. This was the way God designed it. And so uh, you can just reject that. It, this was here before culture was here. And so feminism today calls people to, to rise up and rebel against the very order that God created and established. It, it, it focuses on destroying distinctions. It, it tells women to pursue careers and not families. It tells women to abort babies instead of raising them. It tells women to build their dreams instead of nurturing homes. 
And this is very uh, a heavy thing for me because I have two daughters and I, and I desire for them to embrace their femininity. It is, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Men are helped greatly by godly women. They complement us. They refine us. They make us better. But when they steal our strength and they try to undermine the authority that God has given, it's very harmful. And culture is trying to teach women to do that. And I think it's wrong. And men are, are wimps too often and don't say, no, this isn't right. Or they, they, they exert their authority in ungodly ways, in unhelpful ways. And they sin in, in trying to uh, fulfill the mandate that God gave us. Equally bad. So I, I think it should be clear to society. It's apparently not. But it should be clear that when we dismantle the natural family, society is not helped. It doesn't bring freedom. I mean, just take a look around. You see the evidence of that. But I also would say this. Most young people today have not seen this demonstrated for them well. They haven't seen this, the, the beauty of these distinctions demonstrated for them in real life, in real time. They've only been taught to think like the secular world. And frankly, the church has done a poor job of, of demonstrating the contrast to that the beauty of God's design, which is why divorce rates among Christians are almost identical to the world, it, which is why the church needs to be, I think, the place where these God-ordained roles are lived out in their beauty and their design. We need to own this, and we need to demonstrate the beauty of it. Question, when does life begin? It's all related to anthropology, these hot-button topics all related to the doctrine of man. When does life begin? Is it 18 weeks? 20 weeks? Conception? What? Fertilization. This is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, conservatives, every time they do this, I scream at the TV. They need to stop debating weeks in the abortion debate. They get sucked into this every time. They're dumb. Every time they start debating the weeks. No, you need to start debating what is a life? What's a life? And when does life start to matter? <laughs> when does it matter? Both the Bible and science declares that life begins at conception. Immediately after conception, the life begins to grow. Okay? As soon as there's growth, that life is a real life. And so the real debate should be, should be about when does life matter? When is, is, is it when the life is able to care for itself? Is that when the life matters? If that's the case, it should be legal to kill infants, right? And old people. Those, they're not able to care for themselves either. Is that, is that when the life matters? Is it based on location? Is that when the life matters? If the womb is okay to murder, what about other locations? What about nursing homes? What about daycares? Some pretty rowdy kids. Is it based on location? Is it based on when they can care for themselves, right? See, despite the many ideas that the world offers, only one is biblical. Personhood begins at fertilization, at conception. Scientific fact demonstrates that life begins at conception when all the 23 pairs of chromosomes are complete, the fertilized egg com com uh, has 
the complete and fixed genetic structure, including, by the way, gender. Male and female are determined at that moment. You can identify how you want, but the reality is your chromosomes don't change. Your DNA doesn't change. That's who you are. And when you go to heaven or hell, you will go back to being the very person God made you to be. The Bible makes many references to babies in the womb. And interestingly, when, they, when, when it does, when he does, it's usually done in personal terms. So, for example, Rebecca's children, the children struggled together in her womb, we read. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5, that, that great passage, before you were born, I consecrated you. John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb when he heard Mary's voice, right? Psalm 139, 13 through 16, Isaiah 44, 24, also refer to God's intimate knowledge and involvement with people in the womb. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 strongly shows that the unborn are to be considered persons when it indicates that a pregnant woman that is hit by a man and the child within her dies, it says that the law of retaliation should be applied or enforced, which is a life for a life. If the death penalty is required for a baby in the womb, according to Exodus 21, by this standard, what should be applied for the practice of abortion? It's the same thing. It involves the killing of a person, a human being, made in God's image. The only difference is the location that it happens. Because if we're all made in the image of God, we should not make distinctions on which lives have value and which lives do not. We're all valuable because we're image bearers of the God of heaven. And we are all the same because we all have the same need, which is sin and salvation. We're all the same. We have the same need. Galatians 3, 27 through 29 says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, offspring, heirs according to the promise. Every person, whether male or female, free or slave, able-bodied or disabled-bodied, we are all one in Christ. This is the great promise of the gospel and a great reminder of how wrong our world gets things. Life has immense value and we should not take it away out of convenience. Questions on that? Yes. Yeah, I, th I think absolutely we'll have our, ma our, our male or female bodies. Jesus did. When he was resurrected, he came as a man and resurrected as a man. I think he's the example that we would look to in that. Yes. Yep. Every time. Yeah.
that. Thank you, Mike. That's super helpful. And we're going to, uh, I, I haven't seen the, the curriculum for this coming Friday, but the training on disability, I'm almost certain they're going to get into a lot of that, that kind of stuff about what, what is the image of God, what does that mean, um, which I'm, I'm grateful because it just, in God's providence, it, it couples this, this lesson that will, I think, complement really well in a different way. But we're almost out of time, and I'm not done. Um, so we're going we're gonna to just power through here real, <laughs> real quick. Uh, summary of mankind. What is the essence of man? Man is created in God's image in a dualistic manner, meaning both physical and spiritual. Okay, that's our essence. Our moral state of man. We're fallen, we're dead, we're captive to sin. Uh, we'll talk more about this aspect of, of mankind when we do the doctrine of sin, which will be in two weeks. Um, but, but hang tight, we'll get there. What is the need of man? The need of man is redemption. We need to be redeemed. We need to be saved. Man's greatest need is not what the world tells you. It's not self-actualization. It's not positive thinking. It's not affluence. It's not personal peace. It's not riches and wealth. It's not a fulfilling career. It's not popularity. It's not certainly not cutting off our genitals and identifying with whatever we want to identify as. It is none of those things. Our greatest need is redemption. The fall and sin has distorted the image of God and humanity, and Christ provides the only way to restore that fully, and he will for those who come to him. Uh, the practicalities of Imago Dei, uh, when we sin, we lie, we, we cheat, we steal, we murder, whatever, whatever that sin is that we do, we misrepresent our creator wrongly. We're, 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 doing, uh, we're, we're setting a bad example, we're dishonoring God. But God gave us the responsibility to protect and to take dominion of the earth. We're called to raise godly families. We're called to apply his moral laws to society. We're called to proclaim his message and the hope of the gospel to the nations. We're called to steward the environment, not to worship it, uh, but we're called to steward it. We're called to redeem the culture around us that is falling apart. We're called to put our hand to the plow with a sense of optimism that God has given us his spirit. It, it resides in us. He's redeemed us for the purpose of good works to fulfill the great commission. And that dominion mandate is still in effect now. We're, we're called to, to do that, which now is enhanced with the gospel that goes forth and conquers the nations. So that that's, that's what we're called to do. Adam and Eve were created in God's image, which it indicated their divine right as rulers. Adam and Eve were, in, in a very real sense, a king and a queen with direct, directly authorized by God to rule the earth and called to subdue the earth and to establish multiple households. They, they weren't commanded, as society likes to think now, like just, just get married, have a couple kids, and, and drive your minivan around Eden. That's not... That wasn't what the, the, the dominion mandate was. They were called to be on mission together and to build and advance God's kingdom on earth. And we're called to the same mission now. And I think we've lost sight of that to some degree, and we need to, to come back to it and redeem that. All right. That's all I got for now. Um, do you have any questions? You're, I'll stick around, of course. But if not, let me pray, and we'll free the kids. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this evening and for this topic. 
Uh, I feel uh, in some ways like a failure because there's so many things we didn't talk about tonight, but um, you know, uh, you know what we need to hear. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us grow in this doctrine. Uh, it's such an important one. So much confusion in our culture today, Lord, and I pray that we would be firmly rooted in the truth, that we would not be afraid to address the lies that are uh, uh, said before us, that we would understand what your word says about who we are and what we need, the essence of mankind, that we would delight in it, that we would take great delight in um, what you've done for us, uh, and, and that we would proclaim to the nations the gospel of Christ that not even the gates of hell can prevent the advancement of. And Lord, we thank you that you have, have conquered sin in such a way that that can take place even now uh, as we wait for your return. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.